I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. After her three-month-old son, Ryan, became violently ill, Patricia Stallings rushed him to the hospital where he was placed in the pediatric intensive care unit. However, it wasn't until several weeks later when baby Ryan suffered another episode that he succumbed to his condition. Patricia was later arrested and convicted of first-degree murder. However, it wouldn't be long until the real truth emerged. This is episode 35, The Patricia Stallings Story. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. Well, today we have a special treat because after we talk about the case today, we'll hear from Jessica Henry, who's the author of the new compelling book, Smoke But No Fire, which tells the stories of innocent people who have been tried, convicted, imprisoned, and even put to death for crimes that never even occurred in the first place. Megan, before we jump into the Patricia Stallings story, we have some patrons to thank. All right, let's do it. All right, first, a big thank you to Sarah. I love the way Amy says Sarah, and I say Sarah. So whichever one you are, thank you. (laughs) And also a thank you to Marielle. Marielle, thank you. Great name. Megan, do we have anyone else today? Yeah, I think we do, actually. Um, I'd like to say a big thank you to Tess Brigham. Thank you, Tess. Thanks, Tess. And also, we have Pam Everfree. Awesome. Thank you so much, Pam. Again, thank you so much for those of you who support us by leaving us a review, telling your friends, following us on social media, and supporting us on Patreon. We are almost at 100 patrons, which marks our halfway point to 200. Megan, what happens once we hit 200? Once we hit 200 patrons, we start bringing you all an extra episode per month just for our patrons. And in addition, you will still receive the AMA happy hours and the t-shirt. And all the other fun goodies. All the other fun stuff. So thank you guys so much. And we're looking forward to passing that mark. Thanks. All right, Megan, let's jump into today's story on Patricia Stallings. And Megan, these types of cases are often ignored. I'm assuming you haven't heard much about no crime wrongful convictions, have you? A little bit, but honestly, no. I know a lot more about wrongful convictions in which there was a crime, but it was just the wrong person. So today, what I want to highlight is one of these types of cases. So as always, let's start with a background. Patricia Stallings was born in 1964 and lived in St. Louis, Missouri. As a young adult, she worked at a 7-Eleven nearby to her home, and that's where she met David, who would eventually become her husband in 1988. Okay. In April of 1989, their first son was born. His name is Ryan. 
From early on, Ryan had suffered from health problems, mostly gastric issues, but it was never really clear what the issue was. He could not hold down his formula, and he was vomiting very often. Patty was even quoted as saying, we kind of got used to it. He just looked so normal. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So things took a turn. On the morning of July 7th, 1989, when Ryan was just three months old, Patty found him listless in his crib. He was staring at the ceiling and breathing abnormally heavy. She immediately left the home with Ryan, called her doctor, and had planned to meet him at the Children's Hospital in St. Louis. But apparently her panic, she was confused, and she turned off the freeway too soon. But luckily, there was another hospital. She arrived at Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital. And this is a mistake that I think she would probably look back on and see that it might have cost her more than she had realized. Wow, okay. Baby Ryan was in critical condition, and he was placed on a respirator for three days. The doctors had no idea what was going on. They had no answer for the stallings. They just knew that this little baby was in distress. The test results came back and indicated the presence of ethylene glycol. Do you know what that is? Right. It's the it's par, it's part of antifreeze. Yep. It's one of the active ingredients. So this is problematic because it did not take long for the police to. What do you think happens? Well, I mean, if a child has antifreeze in his system, they're probably going to assume someone put it there and yep. who other than the person they were with. Yep. So quickly, the Stallings had become the suspect here because how else would a three-month-old have ingested this? We're not talking about a baby who's crawling or walking that could just right. ingest this on their own. So what followed, not surprisingly, was an intense questioning of both David and Patty separately most of the time. And some reports said that Patty had failed a lie detector test, but it actually turns out the police had only told David that. When uh, because, you know, you, the police can lie to yeah. us. Yep. The police are permitted to lie to individuals in interrogation. Of course, there are some state differences on what they can and cannot lie about. But mm -hmm. as far as I know, all states can lie and say you failed or someone else failed sure. a polygraph test. The results were, in fact, inconclusive. But it really doesn't matter anyway, Megan, because we know that lie detector results are scientifically uncertain and often inadmissible anyway. I have said this. I said this in another episode, but I know so many cases where deception was indicated. It turns out they were telling the truth or the opposite. So exactly. I do see why, unfortunately, polygraphs are unreliable. And you know what I also found out in my research is I didn't realize, but in some states, you can actually admit the polygraph results as long as both parties agree. Which oh. is highly unlikely. That's why we never see it. Yeah, it would never happen because yeah. it's going to be unfavorable to one of the parties. Exactly. But I thought that was interesting that that's kind yeah. of what the law is on the books. Okay. Okay, back to the story. Luckily, Ryan was showing improvement. And after 12 days in the hospital, he was released. However, he was not released to his parents. He was now in the custody of the Missouri Division of Family Services. Okay, because his parents were being investigated for the, exactly. uh, the alleged incident. Yes, exactly. So Ryan was placed in a foster home. David and Patty were allowed to see Ryan, but only for about an hour a week. And it had to be supervised with the social worker and nothing edible was allowed in the room. Got it. During a visit on August 31st, Patty was briefly left alone with Ryan and a bottle of formula. I do want to mention that this bottle of formula was prepared by his foster mother. This does become important later. I see where it's going. Yes. So she fed him the bottle. It is unclear exactly who or how many people were present during the bottle feeding, but it sounds as if she wasn't alone very long and some people did witness the feeding. So people maybe came and went. Someone might have stepped out for a moment here, a moment there, but it's not like she was alone for a long period of time. Okay. Just four days later, Ryan was hospitalized again and his condition was critical. Again, they found high levels of ethylene glycol in his blood. At this point, Patty was arrested and jailed on a charge of assault. David reportedly stayed by his ailing son's bedside. We're going to talk about this later, but I find it interesting that they honed in on Patty and not David. Well, she's the one who gave him the bottle, though. I know. And I see where they're going. I mean, that's... <laughs> yep. Around this time, the police also searched the Stallings' home, and they found two bottles of antifreeze. One was half empty. Tragically, Ryan would not recover this time, and he passed away on September 7th, 1989, at only five months old. Aww. Patty's charge was now upgraded to first-degree murder. Right. Because oh, remember, it was assault because the baby was still yeah. alive. No, I, I get it. She was not allowed to be at the funeral. Oh. I was trying to find out if bail was offered and they just couldn't afford it, but it really wasn't clear. But I believe on a charge like that, she probably was held without bail probably. anyway. 
So while in jail, about a month later, Patty discovered that she was four months pregnant. Oh, boy. Her second son, DJ, David Jr., was born in February of 1990. I believe he was about a month premature, but otherwise, you know, a healthy birth. Unfortunately, once he was born, he was immediately removed and sent to a foster home while Patty remained in her cell awaiting trial. So they wouldn't give him to the father either. Nope. Oh, I see. Okay. Yep. So let's talk about the trial now. The trial began in 1991, and it only lasted three days. That's very short for a charge like this. For a murder trial, that's incredibly short. Patty's attorney did not secure any medical experts at all. Apparently, he did contact a medical expert who had told him that there would really be no other explanation for the chemical found in the baby's blood. Mind you, never acknowledging the possibility that it could just be incorrect lab results. Okay. Okay. I also think he probably stopped looking after that. And this mistake, I think, would later play into one of the reasons why the court ruled that there was an adequate defense in this case. Okay. Patty's defense also failed to call any character witnesses on Patty's behalf. And allegedly, Patty really pushed for this, as anyone would. The only thing that was really mentioned about Ryan's health is that he could have died from natural causes. But again, there was no medical expert testifying to this. And no one's going to give that much credence. Nope. Meanwhile, though, the prosecutor built a very persuasive case. They called police. They called social workers. Unfortunately, they allowed these people to testify that Patty showed little emotion upon learning that Ryan was dead. And you know how we feel about this. We cannot judge people's affects after trauma. Okay. They also called investigators who produced that bottle of antifreeze that they found in the Stallings home. The prosecutor said there was nothing else that could explain the ethylene glycol that was found in Ryan's blood. The prosecution also had experts who testified to the fact that Ryan had crystals in his blood and several organs in his body also had these crystals, which is consistent with this type of poisoning. Lastly, there were traces of chemical found on the baby's bottle. Remember, she fed him during that visit? They tested that bottle. After only 10 hours of deliberation, a jury found Patty guilty of first-degree murder and she was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. I mean, that's a really harsh punishment, but it's fitting given what the crime is and the case the prosecutor built. They built a good case. If the defense has no defense, then what what would be the outcome? You're exactly right. And before we discuss exactly what ends up happening, because it's far from over, I want to go back for a moment. Remember when I said, you know, when Patty was in jail awaiting trial, she had her second child, DJ. Yes. Well, after she had DJ again, he was, you know, taken away to live with a foster family, but she was in contact with a social worker. And she was told that DJ, when he was very young, had been rushed to the hospital because he was listless, vomiting, and breathing funny. Ah. And Patty says she went into shock, quote, those were the same things that were wrong with Ryan. Within a month, DJ was diagnosed as having methamelonic acidemia, otherwise known as MMA. Pardon my pronunciation there. He was brought to St. Louis Children's Hospital, not the hospital that Ryan was brought to. Remember? Oh, that's the critical mistake if she had gone to the other hospital. I'm curious what you think. But what happens is DJ is diagnosed with this rare genetic disorder of MMA. And what happens in this disorder is it's what's called as an autosomal recessive disorder. Do you know what this is? No. So it means that the genes were passed down from both parents. Oh, It's very interesting. Okay. So with this disorder, the body does not break down certain proteins and fats properly, which can cause a buildup of certain acids in the blood that can result in death. The Stallings truly believe that Ryan might have suffered from the same disease. And actually, their attorney did as well. But remember, the attorney never called any medical experts to testify in her trial. In fact, the similarities between Ryan and DJ's illnesses were never introduced in court at all. Apparently, the defense attorney did try to omit the info, but the prosecutor said that DJ's condition was irrelevant to the issue at hand. I mean, that's totally... Well, what they said, though, is even if Ryan did in fact have MMA like his brother, that still wouldn't explain the high levels of ethylene glycol that were found in his blood. Okay. Or would it? I was just going to say. uh, (laughs) Yes, and this is the interesting part. So it wasn't, again, it's not surprising that the prosecution did this because the defense attorney provided zero evidence to support this theory that seemingly just came out of thin air. The judge ended up agreeing with the prosecutor that the information surrounding DJ's medical condition was not relevant and therefore it was kept out of trial. 
But luckily, a stranger was able to help. Ooh, who's the stranger? A man by the name of William Sly had been following the Stallings case in the media and had recently watched an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I used to love Unsolved Mysteries, too. But go ahead. So in May of 1991, Unsolved Mysteries featured Baby Ryan's case. And it turns out that this William Sly was not just anyone. He was the chairman of the biochemistry department at St. Louis University. Wow. Yes. And he quickly suspected that Ryan might have had MMA like his brother and believes that he could have very well died from the disease. And fortunately for the Stallings family, Sly then contacted James Shoemaker, who was now the director of the university's metabolic screening laboratory. Okay. Now listen to this. Shoemaker got access and tested frozen samples of Ryan's blood serum, finding evidence that Ryan, in fact, did have MMA and not ethylene glycol poisoning. So what you're saying is that the condition actually produces ethylene glycol. Kind of. What happens is, again, remember the body does not break down certain fats and proteins properly, which causes methylamonic acid buildup in the blood, which is often mistaken for ethylene glycol. Wow. So in other words, it is that kind of acid is a byproduct of MMA, and it is so similar in structure to ethylene glycol, it actually only differs by one atom. Oh, my goodness. Right? Okay, and I get it. I thought you were saying it was like, I, I had it actually wrong. I didn't realize this is where you were going. Wow. Well, it's also a little complicated. We're not scientists here, right? No. But th- none of this was brought up during trial. In fact, it turns out that the original lab reports that found lethal concentrations of ethylene glycol in Ryan's blood, they were actually incorrect, and it was methylamonic acid that was present in his blood, which, again, is a byproduct of MMA. Wow. So the lab mistook the results because there were only one atom difference between these two substances. Wow. Okay, but even though they have this- um, (laughs) A little bit terrifying. It's very terrifying. Sly and Shoemaker contacted the original prosecutor with this information, but the prosecutor wasn't yet convinced. They needed to test this theory. So they did just that. They found an expert on MMA, Dr. Piero Ronaldo, who was an assistant professor of genetics at Yale. Now, Dr. Ronaldo studied this case for six weeks, and his own tests established that Ryan did indeed die of MMA. And as charged in a later lawsuit by the Stallings, the scientific findings used to convict Patty were grossly inaccurate. Wow. Yes. Dr. Ronaldo was quoted as saying, technically speaking, I've never seen such lousy work. It was a classic case of misdiagnosis. Wow. Yeah. So after conferring with Dr. Ronaldo, the prosecutor made a rare and remarkable legal move. Oh, okay. Did the prosecutor go on record and request the sent, uh, conviction be vacated? There you go. He asked the county circuit judge to dismiss the murder charge. This was after he had initially planned to retry the case, and she was even placed under house arrest. But once he got all this information, he also publicly apologized to the Stallings family. So after serving 14 months in prison, Patty was finally free. Her son was removed from custody of foster parents and given back to the parents. So Patty was reunited with her husband and her son, DJ. So I'm going to say I'm glad to hear that that was the outcome well, in so many of these cases. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, we're not no, there No, yet. no, so, no. In so many of these cases, yeah. I just know that um, those who are wrongfully convicted serve much longer sentences and don't have an opportunity yes. to be exonerated and don't have a prosecutor who would step in and admit that he made a mistake and apologize. I totally agree. We know that there are prosecutors that would have pressed on even with this information. So I really think this prosecutor, who is George McElroy, I think he, as you said, he really did a fantastic job of being able to admit where he was wrong. Kudos. So what happened after that? Unfortunately, it's hard to find information. I think Patty was a bit under the, you know, Patty kept a pretty low profile afterwards, which I'm not surprised. I would have as well. What we do know is that the family did go on to sue the lab, the medical examiner, the hospital, and physicians for medical malpractice and wrongful death. The suit was settled for several million dollars, actual amount unknown. Mm-hmm. Remember I said that that mistake she made going to that other hospital? Right. I wonder if things would have been different because the hospital that diagnosed DJ, apparently their lab was able to detect that, you know, rare disease that... I'm going to say yes. If she, had gone, if she had gone to the other hospital, obviously innocent mistake you can't would never have seen, you know, this coming, but 
if they detected it just so quickly after with her second son, I, I have to imagine they would have gotten it right the first time. I, I often wonder how many times she like, you know, just thought about that mistake. And These small decisions that we make that we have no idea are going to yeah, impact. Exactly. I mean, not that it's a small decision, yeah. but like just the, the, the mistake of going to one hospital. And you have to wonder if that hospital would have diagnosed him correctly, would they have been able to save his life also? Oh, you know, right. I know. Oh. Sadly, Patricia and David got divorced. But I believe it was pretty soon after. Some say it was just the trauma of Ryan's death and Patty's sentence. It was just too much for the couple. And I get that. Yeah. Unfortunately, DJ, David Jr., died in 2013 at the age of 23. No. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't gosh. find cause of death. I It was implicated somewhere that it may have been complications from his medical condition. Oh. Um, David, too, passed away just last year. And he was only 57. Oh, man. And... I don't know where Patty is, but I really hope and wish that she is living a fulfilling life doing something she loves because she really suffered a really horrible thing here. This poor family. I mean, that was really unfortunate. So before we talk about our final thoughts, I was thinking, you know, how did this happen? You know, some people say that Patty was so quickly judged. We know that the trial was short. The deliberations were short. And then it occurred to me that the Paula Sims case was around this time. Do you remember the Paula Sims case? I don't. Okay, so very briefly, Paula Sims claimed, this was in 1986, that a masked gunman took her infant daughter from her home. And then three years later, she claimed that a masked gunman took her other infant daughter from her home. Both babies were found dead shortly after they were reported missing. I mean, how many times can you use that, use that excuse? <laughs> I don't know. So not, not surprisingly, Sims was convicted in 1990, on the first-degree murder charges for the death of both of her babies. Now, I'm talking these babies were six days old and 13 days old. Wow. And, you know, this case, we can go... Maybe we'll actually do an episode, but she had a son that she never murdered, and there was something about having baby girls compared to boys. It's, it's a wild case. But, you know, some people might suspect that the Paula Sims case was so outrageous to people, and, mm -hmm. of course, it blasted all over the media, that I think it was in people's minds that mothers kill their children. It was also, if I'm not mistaken, around the time of Diane Downs. And that one was where Diane claimed that the masked intruder killed her yes. children. And that one incensed the yep. nation. So yep. maybe there was, you know, an, an atmosphere that was kind of ripe for this kind of sentiment. I think you're absolutely right. And I want to go back to something we touched on before. You made a good point that the reason why perhaps Patty was the one suspected is because she was left alone feeding the baby for that short time. It's the only thing I could think of. But it sounds like Patty, it sounds like David was never under suspicion, even from the beginning. So I'm wondering, oh, do I you see. think this has to do with, again, that ge the gender roles? Or right, I see. So David wasn't didn't come under as much suspicion as Patty. And yeah, what happens in some of these cases is that Women who don't conform to our exact expectations of their gender roles are judged much more harshly when they commit any act, but then to throw in, you know, an act that involves harming their child, then they violated the mother role as well. And this becomes um, almost like the perfect storm for these women to be punished harshly, judged harshly, and become the, the focal point of this type of investigation. Mm -hmm. I do think it, I do believe it relates oftentimes to gender roles and us punishing women when they violate them. Yep. Again, I, I do. I, I wonder about where Patty Stallings wound up. And I my heart goes out to her and to the other families who have suffered. And I do really, really hope that we can in talking with Jessica and in doing what we do, I really hope we can provide some remedies for the, these types of atrocities. Yes. And I hope everyone is, is you know, as incensed or as passionate feels the way that I know you and I do. Mm -hmm. And so I hope, you know, I hope even the story, I hope Patty even hears the story and just know that we're sorry, we're yeah. thinking of you and maybe your case helped pave the way for yep. other types of reform for people. So now, Megan, I think we'll turn to Jessica Henry, our interview with Jessica Henry. Right. And she actually covered uh, Patricia Stalling in her book, correct? She did very briefly, but yeah, she did. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Let's let's move on to Jessica. <laughs> So now we're going to speak to Jessica Henry, who again is the author of the compelling new book, Smoke But No Fire. 
This book sheds light on this aspect of wrongful convictions that, as we mentioned, is often ignored and even unknown to many people. Believe it or not, Megan, people are convicted and sent to prison over crimes that never even happened. So not only is this book academically sound, it features the powerful personal stories of those who have been wrongfully convicted. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, Amy. Hi, Megan. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Obviously, I would have preferred to see you in person. Megan, I don't know if you know this, but me and Jessica are conference buddies. Oh, yes. that's right. I did remember that. Yes. Oh. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get back to normal soon and we can hang again in person. I would love that. I know Amy misses her conferences. I really do. I really do. Um, so Jessica, of course, I know you, but our listeners may not know you. So would you mind just starting by telling us a bit about who you are and what led you to writing this book? Sure. So um, I actually was a public defender in New York City for about 10 years. Um, and then I switched into the academy. I became an academic in um, 2005. And I've been a faculty member in the Department of Justice Studies at Montclair State since then. And one of the courses that I teach is a course on wrongful convictions. And one day while I was preparing for class, I was playing around in a really fun interactive database that your listeners could go to at the National Registry of Exonerations. And you can look up different cases and you can sort the cases by various factors. And I looked up one case that was listed as a no crime wrongful conviction. And the more I read, the more I was really intrigued. And then I started sorting all the data and I realized a stunning thing. One third of all known exonerations are no crime wrongful convictions. Wow. I, I was shocked. This is this area I research in, I study, I teach, and I couldn't believe one third. I actually emailed the registry to say, is that right? And not only is it correct from a data perspective, but it's a huge undercount um, because it actually doesn't capture a lot of the cases at the lower end, which we just don't have good data about. So misdemeanor cases that are no crime cases, which we can talk about, but there's a lot of those that we know nothing about. And of course, the data about wrongful convictions in general is an undercount because anyone who's been wrongly convicted but hasn't been exonerated isn't in this database. So one third really blew my mind. And then I realized no one knew about it. And so I thought it was a really interesting and important topic to dig down deep in and to write about. Yes. And I couldn't agree more. I obviously think this is one of the more important areas of you know criminal justice and especially no crime cases. Like you said, it's very understudied. And in this episode, we talked about obviously Patricia Stallings, where we saw a medical diagnosis that was mistaken for poisoning that resulted in Patricia's murder conviction. Can you give us a few other examples of no crime wrongful convictions? Well, so Patricia Stallings case is is a shocking case. And it's an example of a no crime wrongful conviction that came from a medical misdiagnosis. And we see those, unfortunately, not infrequently. So in cases where there's shaken baby syndrome, so a baby will die and the person who was last in the presence of the baby gets accused of homicide, when in reality, the baby died of natural causes or illness or whatever. And so there's a variety of cases that fall into that medical misdiagnosis. And we can talk in more detail about some of the truly tragic stories that I uncovered throughout the book. But that's not the only sort of trigger, if you will, for no crime wrongful convictions. So we have these medical misdiagnoses. We also have crime misdiagnoses. So let's take a fire. And the person who appears on the fire scene decides it was an arson, when in reality, it was an accidental fire or a naturally occurring fire. People have been executed based on a wrongful diagnosis, a wrongful categorization of a fire as an arson. So we have those types of things. We also have crimes that never occurred, but that uh, where someone gets convicted at, based on false accusations. So somebody is in the middle of a horrible divorce or there's a you know heated custody dispute and one party will manufacture a crime in order to tilt a case in their favor or to cover up their own sort of, you know, you see these horrible situations where teenagers will actually lie about a crime occurring so that they don't get in trouble over curfew or something like that. Um, so false accusations is a second big category. And a third big category is police misconduct, where police actually manufacture crimes. They plant evidence in order to cover up their own wrongdoing, to gain a financial benefit. And so those are three large triggers of these no crime cases. Yeah. 
And Megan, we've covered, um, I don't know if you know the Joanne Parks case. She's not an exoneree, but I believe she is wrongfully convicted. She's serving a sentence in California for an arson that killed her three children. And I believe that is going to be a case. She has, she's, um, the Innocence Project took her case, right? Didn't we talk about the that? The Innocence Project, yeah. Now have her case. And then there were, what was it, Mantha Lewis that you covered? Yeah, her her daughter um, was initially deemed to have drowned. And then her other small child claims that he saw his mom. You know, he was an eyewitness at like six, but very flawed eyewitness testimony. And so, I mean, my conclusion would have been that that was uh, a a wrongful conviction with no crime and yeah, it was a drowning. no evidence to support this theory besides the eyewitness testimony of a six-year-old who was probably pressured and, you know, they were suggested what he should say. And then there was also, what was the sex abuse cases? Because Jessica talks about those in her book. She talks about the Keller cases. Yeah, so Dan and Francis Keller were this couple down in Florida, I mean, Florida, in Texas. Yeah. And they ran a daycare center out of their home. And they wound up being accused by one of uh, one of the people who they babysat, who had severe mental health issues from the outset, even at a very young age. And by the time the case kind of goes to trial, the Kellers are accused of such astonishing things that it would almost be funny if it weren't for the fact that they were sent away for decades. And this includes things like dismembering babies in front of the children when no baby was ever reported missing, transporting the children by helicopter to Mexico so that they could be sexually abused and getting them back in time to be picked up by their parents. Um, Being fed Kool-Aid that was laced with blood, cutting off the fingers, the the, uh, digital fingers of a gorilla in the local park, when of course there was no gorilla in the local park. These are the things they were accused of doing and they were convicted. That's incredible. I mean, that sounds like McMartin to me. Also, the accusations got so, you know, so absurd, so outlandish, right. But the Kellers, you know, they spent 21 years in prison. That's incredible. And there was a case in New Jersey where I'm from, a woman named Michelle Kelly Michaels, who spent five years out of her 48-year sentence. And again, crazy stories that if anyone had been able to take a step back, they would have said, there's no way this is happening. She was convicted, Mm -hmm. as if it did. No crime ever occurred. That's crazy. So you talk a little bit about the role that cognitive bias plays in no crime wrongful conviction cases. Would you mind explaining that phenomenon and how it contributes to these types of cases? Sure. And so by cognitive biases, there's lots of them, right? But one way that this contributes to no crime wrongful convictions is when people show up expecting to see something and then they kind of ignore any evidence to the contrary. And if I can tell you a story that illustrates this. I'd like to talk about Rodriguez Crawford. Mm -hmm. I actually start the book with this case because to me, it is one of the most jaw-dropping tales of a system gone terribly wrong and of cognitive biases at play. So Rodriguez Crawford was a 19-year-old African-American who lived down Louisiana in a poor African-American part of town. And he had a son who he adored, Rodirius. And one morning, the unthinkable happened. He woke up and Rodirius was dead in the bed next to him. And they frantically called the police and an ambulance. And you can hear, you know, after the tapes were released, you hear the dispatch being so, so disparaging about the family and the paramedics in route making jokes about the family and what they would expect to find when they arrived. And so when they get to the home, they start referring to it already as a crime scene. So when they get to the home, they whisk the baby, the lifeless baby off into the ambulance and they lock the doors and call the police. So the family's frantically surrounding the ambulance trying to find out what's happening with their son. And finally, when the police arrive, um, they come out and they tell Rodriguez that his son is dead. In the meantime, the paramedic who had responded claimed to see all kinds of evidence of abuse that was never borne out by the autopsy. Rodriguez, instead of being treated like a grieving father, is whisked off to the police station where he is interrogated. And then the medical examiner declares it's a homicide without ever getting the lab results back. Then the lab results come back and show that the baby has not only pneumonia, but sepsis in the baby's lungs. And rather than say, oh, wait a minute, this seems like the baby died from this illness, dismissed it as incidental. 
And then things went from bad to worse. So we've got the paramedics on the scene claiming to see abuse that doesn't exist. We've got the medical examiner who's not actually interested in the findings from the lab and the actual science. In walks a DA who is renowned in Louisiana for loving capital punishment. He had an unbelievable track record. And sure enough, he pursued the death penalty against Rodriguez Crawford, struck all of the black jurors from the jury pool, as the Louisiana Supreme Court later decided. And between all of the different pieces, he was convicted and sentenced to die. And so this case to me, ultimately his conviction was overturned and he was exonerated because in fact, the baby had died from an illness and no crime had ever been convicted. But it's a classic example of cognitive biases on the part of the medical examiner and the other experts in the case. It also illustrates just how rampant racism and issues of poverty play out in our criminal justice system. So I think it's a really important case that kind of highlights a lot of these different issues that come up when we talk about wrongful convictions. I was also struck by that case being the opening case in the book. It really draws you in. I believe it's one of the more shocking cases I've ever heard. I mean, there are other cases, you know, we could talk about. There is the case of Beverly Monroe. So Beverly Monroe was convicted of murdering her boyfriend. And in reality, it was a suicide. The first folks who responded to the scene thought it looked like a suicide. The first medical examiner said it was a suicide. But this detective who was assigned to the case got it in his head that it was a murder and that Beverly Monroe had convicted committed this murder. And again, he literally ignored any evidence to the contrary and focused solely in on the tiny bits of shreds of evidence that could have suggested that Beverly Monroe had committed the crime. He ignored her alibi. He ignored the fact that the victim, the person who died, um, had been suffering from depression and had lots of people in the back burner who who did not like him. He wasn't a particularly beloved person. Um, And there were lots of reasons to suggest that she had done nothing wrong. And he just ignored them all because he was committed to this idea that a crime had been committed. And once somebody is convinced that a crime has been committed, the system kicks in to do what it does best, just get convictions. Tunnel vision, right? So speaking of Beverly's case, that actually goes nicely to my next question. Do you notice a gender disparity in these types of cases? Because I kind of did. I haven't studied it. Actually, we maybe should do something with it because it is interesting as Megan studies women in crime. And I guess I do too. But if so, any theories as to why women are more prone to these types of errors? Well, so it's really interesting, right? I mean, women um, make up only about, again, using the National Registry of Exonerations database. So that's always Mm -hmm. the caveat because it's as good a data as we have since 1989, but there are some limitations with it as well. But using the NRE data, um, women make up about 9% of all known exonerees, but they make up nearly 17% of all no crime exonerees. Mm -hmm. And even more interestingly, of all the women who are exonerated, 70% are involved in a no crime case. And many of them are convicted and then exonerated of crimes involving family or children. I have a theory on why, but I'd love to hear yours first. (laughs) Well, I mean, some folks who have done some studies about this, um, Andrea Lewis and Sandra Somerville, they they sort of were just hypothesizing about gender stereotypes and the roles that women are supposed to play. And if women are supposed to be nurturers and they're supposed to be the mother figure, or they're supposed to be womenly and they don't fit neatly into those categories, well, then they can be blamed for things because they have somehow disavowed or dishonored their role um, as quote unquote women. And so there is something there about the willingness of the police to sort of hone in on a woman in these cases and to build a case. Because again, in a no crime wrongful conviction, you have to work really hard. There's no evidence. No crime occurred. So you're working overtime to get your facts to support this idea that this person is guilty. And so I do think there is something to do with the expectations of what a woman should be and perhaps ways in which the woman, for whatever reason, didn't meet that ideal. That's my exact theory. (laughs) As I have studied and taught this and read some of the studies as well, women are punished even more harshly when they violate what we expect them to be in terms of gender roles. And especially when you throw in the fact that there is a child 
it exacerbates because now they violated the mother role. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with you on that, Jess. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, Sabrina Butler is a classic example. She wound up as one of the only women, I think the only woman on Mississippi's death row. Um, Her child was, you know, not responsive. She desperately tried to give the child CPR to revive him while she was waiting for an ambulance or someone to come help her. By the time the child had arrived in the ER, unfortunately did not survive. But because there were bruises on his abdomen, instead of thinking, oh, this could happen when someone who's not well-trained in CPR attempts to revive their child, they said, oh, you must have beaten your child to death. Right. And she was convicted under that hypothesis. Right. I understand the um, types of cases that comprise, you know, these these no no crime convictions in terms of was it a medical or was it, you know, just there was a presumption of a crime. What I'm wondering, and I'm wondering if you put in your book or if you have any ideas, do you have suggestions for how to reform this area? What what can we do that would help? You know, one of the reasons I love talking about no crime wrongful convictions and wrongful convictions in general, but particularly no crime wrongful convictions, is because we all agree, it doesn't matter what side you're on or where you land on the spectrum, nobody, nobody thinks it's okay to send innocent people to prison for crimes that never occurred. We can all kind of get on board with that. And so that gives us a platform to really take a look at, well, where do we go wrong? So some of the reform suggestions really do vary depending on the kind of circumstance. So one example, which we didn't really talk about today, is, you know, there's a lot of cases where the police engage in aggressive policing tactics. So they go in, they're engaging in really aggressive stop and frisk policies. And, you know, in New York City, for instance, thousands and thousands of people were arrested for trespassing in buildings where they lived um, or where they were invited. And people often wound up getting processed. They'd get booked. They'd spend the night sometimes in a horrible holding cell. And then they would be given the choice. You can plead guilty to this, you know, misdemeanor trespass, or you can come back and fight your case. They almost invariably pled guilty. They just didn't have the capacity to come back to court multiple times, miss work, no child care. And so we could reduce those types of no crime wrongful convictions by changing policing policies. Right. The broken windows policing, which is what they called it, this idea of sort of going in and trying to fix low-level crimes, that only hurts the poor and often people of color. We could do that differently and we would reduce, we would pull a whole bunch of people out of the spectrum. Right. Um, if we're talking about things like medical misdiagnoses or if we're talking about things like forensic misconduct, right? We didn't even go down that rabbit hole where, you know, you've got lab analysts literally manufacturing results instead of doing their jobs, like the Annie Dukins up in Massachusetts who are responsible for thousands, tens of thousands of cases being reversed because they just made up their findings. You know, forensic science is an area that is so ripe for reform. We could create independent scientific labs that are not in any way affiliated with the police or with the prosecutor's office. So they actually could just be objective scientists. I wrote about that once too, the the independence. I'm I'm shocked. That seems like such a no-brainer in terms of reform. Absolutely. And we were were moving towards that, right? Under President Obama, there was the National Forensic Science uh, Academy that was created. Created and we, you know, there were things that were happening, and then it was disbanded. I think that was one of the first things Jeff Sessions did. Yeah. He became the attorney general. And and the other thing people don't realize, there are no national standards. Labs are not accredited in any kind of national right. consistent way. Scientists are not accredited in any kind of national consistent way. These are things we could put into place that would increase the quality of forensic science. So yeah. again, that's a specific recommendation for certain types of no crime wrongful convictions. Sure. Any concrete actions that our listeners can take? Because we have some really awesome listeners who want shit to get done. What could we do on the individual level? Any thoughts? Amy, that's a great question. Um, and there are a few things that people can do, particularly, um, you know, we, we're just getting through this election cycle. But one area that really makes a big difference at the local level is paying attention to who you elect as prosecutor. So prosecutorial reform is uh, when when you've got a progressive prosecutor, it's amazing how things change. They can decline to prosecute all kinds of cases. They can hold police accountable and make sure that they had probable cause to make an arrest and evidence to back it up. And Jessica, Um, do you mind quickly just 
Um, I know there's a lot about this in the book, but what happened in Harris County, Texas, it's incredible with the prosecutor. Yeah, and it's amazing what they did. So in Harris County, Texas, the police were routinely stopping black and brown people, and they would conduct what's called a field test on substances that the police believed were drugs. And field tests are notoriously unreliable, but what Mm -hmm. they are is they are something that can be done very quickly. And so the police can actually conduct a field test to determine the presence of a controlled substance of a drug by literally doing it right there on the spot. And when the test would come back positive, people would be arrested and they would get hauled into court and prosecutors would go, you know, strong arm them and say, listen, you want to plead guilty. This is your best shot. Take a plea on this field test or face, you know, face your doom later. And people pled guilty. And then a very strange thing happened. There was a huge backlog at the Harris County lab, the forensic labs there. But nonetheless, they tested the field tests, even where people had pled guilty. Now, that's very unusual. In most jurisdictions, if you plead guilty, that case is closed. Right. But in Harris County, they actually went ahead and did the tests. And sure enough, um, when the lab results came back, hundreds of people had pled guilty to drug crimes that didn't exist. This is where it gets extraordinary. The Harris County prosecutor saw what happened and undertook the somewhat Herculean task of tracking down as many defendants as they could find and vacating those convictions. That's powerful. That's a good Um, prosecutor. That's what I mean. I I love that because, you know, he's measuring justice as much so as exonerating innocent people. That should be right on par with convictions. Like if we took, you know, justice and defined it differently, it seems like that's what this prosecutor did. I think we'd have different outcomes. I hope this prosecutor serves as a model for others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, so I think that that's something very concrete that your listeners could get involved in. The other thing for, for listeners who live in Um, communities that have public defender offices, you can reach out to your local council, your county commissioners, even the folks at the state level and advocate for additional funding to go towards public defender offices. We often see far greater resources being given to prosecutor offices, and that winds up resulting in far less justice for the poor. Yes. Um, And so that's another, you know, when, when legislators set a budget, they are really talking about the values of a community. And if the community values justice, you can make that clearer by providing more funding for public defender offices. So that's just two sort of concrete suggestions. Oh, that sounds good. Thank you. So who is the intended audience for this book? Because I teach wrongful convictions and I will be using your book in my course both this winter and in this spring because I want to tell you I love the blend of the academic and legal analysis with the personal narratives. Now, did you envision this book being used in a classroom or whose hands do you want it to get into? I I did want this to be a book that had broader crossover appeal. So even though it is published by an academic press, I really worked hard to make it accessible. I know when I read a book, a nonfiction book, I I just love the stuff about the people. So I really tried to bring to life as many stories. And there are a lot of stories in my book because I wanted it to be interesting to the average person who's just interested in criminal justice and wants to see a better system. So it is not geared for academics primarily, although I hope it is of interest to both people who research and teach wrongful convictions, but also to students and also to lay people, just people out in the world who are are interested in this because we don't talk about it enough. And it is such a powerful gateway to reform on every level in our criminal justice system. And Jessica, I want to applaud you for donating the proceeds from this book to support exonerees upon release. I think that is incredible. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, even for the exonerees who are fortunate enough to live in a state that has a compensation statute, and unfortunately, I am sure your listeners know this, there are many exonerees who live in places where they have to litigate. There's no statute. There's no automatic provision for them to get any compensation for the years stolen from them. But even if you're lucky enough to live in a state where you're going to at some point get money to compensate you, the reality is that the day you are released from prison because you've been found innocent, you often have nothing more than a t-shirt on your back and maybe a $10, you know, a $10 bus ticket. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge gap between that initial release and when you might be compensated. Mm -hmm. So the idea that I, you know, may be able to help alleviate some of the suffering that people experience upon their release is powerful. I'm happy to do it. And to make matters worse, those individuals are not considered parolees and not that parole services are so great. However, 
there's something and exonerees do not um, exonerees are not able to take advantage of those services. Nothing. It's crazy. They're not able to take advantage of any reentry services. Yep. So they are literally alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many times the the lawyer will try to help them, but uh, you know, that's not a, a lengthy, you know, there's, there's a, the folks who are released from prison have a lot of needs, right? Mm-hmm. Prison is very traumatic, mm-hmm. even more so when you've been incarcerated for a crime you didn't commit, you know, there's, it's a very intense area for the exonerees. And, and I don't think we as a society do enough to support them. Well, it's wonderful that you're supporting them, not only by writing this book, but then turning around and, and really helping them with resources that they need. So thank you. Before we close out, I must say the title of this book and the cover art in this book, Smoke But No Fire, it's just so perfect for the subject matter. I can't get over it. I need to know, how did you come up with that title? You know, I would love to say it just it is so perfect. It is. This is exactly smoke, but no fire. Um, And the whole title is smoke, but no fire convicting the innocent of crimes that never happened. But that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's smoke is like a you know, there's like it's a rumor. It's a a myth. It's Mm -hmm. just not. It's a phantom crime. And the cover art, I agree with you. I did not design it. And so I am able to brag about it because I think it is just so gorgeous. It is. Jessica, obviously, we could talk to you for hours about this, but we need to start wrapping up. So I want to thank you so much for your time. This was so much fun. Jessica, I want to thank you so much. I have not read the book yet, but of course I'm going to. Um, Amy is handing it to me right now, which is perfect. I know some of the cases, but not all. But after just hearing a little bit about what you've said today. I cannot wait to learn about all of these cases and again, what we can do to help with this issue. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been so much fun. I've really enjoyed the opportunity. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include People.com, Forensic Files, Unsolved Mysteries, the book Smoke But No Fire by Jessica S. Henry. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.